Deep in the History is independent and proudly listener-supported. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my newest patron, who went to patreon.com slash deepinthehistory and pledged his support. You can also do so directly on Spotify and starting next week on Apple Podcasts. Every cent I receive goes to improve this experience we share. So Zane, my new historian, I salute you and thank you from the center of my being. Consider this a foreword. The tale you are about to hear was meant to be written and released after the epic tie-in versus Reforma. The Marian reforms, like you've never, ever experienced them before in any medium. The immense research is complete, and I'm halfway through writing the script. However, something occurred that I felt I needed to address. Indulge me for a moment while I explain. It was brought to my attention by some of you that comments were made about Deep in a History on a live stream of, quote, very prominent, conservative, and libertarian YouTubers. I was asked to respond to them directly on social media. I won't. For to do so is to join the human centipede that is online drama. I've witnessed time and again that even with the most noble of intentions, a response to nonsense only leads to more blather that they use to trick their audience into thinking that there is actual animosity, and more importantly, that their worldview has any validity when in fact it has no substance at all. Otherwise, they would not require said responses to amplify their voice. Each response causes divisions, arguments, and strife between our audiences. It is a quick and easy way for a show that hasn't evolved to gain online clout. An abusive trick that gets repeated again and again as creating a viral argument on Twitter leads to new patrons each time. Inspiring hate for money. That's not me or deep into history, which is why I will mention no names. But I will take a gladius, if you will, to the crux of the critique that was made about this experience we share. It hinged on one moment in Versus, The Eagles of Jupiter, Part 2. Specifically at the end, the triumph of Gaius Marius, awarded by the Senate and people for winning the Jugurthine War. Recall that we witnessed Marius's triumph through the eyes of Jugurtha, which I recreated through untold hours of research, and at the end, as Jugurtha passed on to what comes next, he was met by the astral form of his sworn brother, Scipio Emilianus. That's it. That's why our experience is BS and I'm misleading you. My approach was called fantasy and used to imply that every tale that we've experienced together and any knowledge we've gained is equally ludicrous. However, anyone well-read on the period would instantly recognize that our point-of-view sections are meticulously researched. And that scene is a proverbial Easter egg for you. Verses is full of them. As I've said in every public appearance and show that I've had the honor to be a guest on, I seek to give a future to the past. My goal was, is, and always will be to spark the desire for further intellectual inquiry while staying true to my moral code and delivering you the truth. Thus what follows is the most suave rebuttal to online clout chasers. And it gives me sincere pleasure to bring you this forgotten story. For the reason Scipio Emilianus appeared as an astral vision to Jugurtha and the Eagles of Jupiter was because legend has it that he learned the technique when he was visited by one himself. A flourish, I agree, but one used with the best intentions to get you to ask why I created said flourish in the first place. Deep in a history is a labor of love, and my only hope to support myself but I will never take the quick and easy path offered to me by political troglodytes. Also, 
versus wildly popular as it has become is still my version of the fall of the republic and i simply could not resist giving you a force ghost akin to george lucas's when it was solidly based in the lore of the time in addition our tale to be will serve to weave revenge of the ice queen titus polo and lucius verinus and the interlude idus martae flawlessly into past and future releases of verses the saga of how the republic fell to the empire thank you for listening and allowing my small but growing platform to change this corporate game i love you consider that as we go forward and with that said this forward comes to an end this is deep in the history and i'm your host arjun hundle it is the year 51 before the common era the republic of rome stands astride the mediterranean world like the wounded colossus it is just 2 years before was the time of the triumvirate until marcus licinius crassus one of the three rulers of their world and by far the richest sought the one thing that money could not buy vertus he raised legions auxiliaries and launched a massive invasion of the parthian empire in the east modern iran at the battle of kare in 53 bce his legions were annihilated and according to legend crassus was killed by his victorious captors by pouring molten gold down his throat the only drink that could quench his greed in rome shock his death not only shattered the political alliance but seven eagles the legionary standards had been taken by the enemy in this post-marian reform era the eagle was the earthly representation of each legion's virtues not only its warrior prowess but the symbol of the republic's own a devastating blow and tremendous loss of face that should require an immediate and overwhelming military response from the state honor demanded it but this could not happen for the other two members of the triumvirate had pushed the republic to the edge of civil war in rome Pompey Magnus absorbed much of the dead Crassus's faction of the Senate and in the north Julius Caesar hero of the plebs had just completed his conquest of Gaul his elite veteran legions were eager to return home enjoy lives of plenty from the vast spoils they had killed pillaged and bled to earn however they could not Caesar had a litany of debts charges of corruption and misrule with many court cases pending against him He demanded to run for consul in absentia, an assured victory given his vast popularity. He required that high office because it would give him immunity from all legal proceedings. Yet he could not return to Rome to run his political campaign in person because the instant he crossed the Pomerium, the sanctified invisible boundary that surrounded the city, his imperium, his right to command legions would evaporate and his enemies would consume him. the caesar would not leave his loyal veteran legionaries and pompey would not grant his once close friend this exception a terrible stalemate fear of a looming civil war was consuming the populace tension dread was at a level not felt by any citizen since a mere generation before when marius and sulla ripped their world apart in their blood-soaked rivalry a nightmare that many alive had only barely survived a fresh wound all norms had been shattered worse their wars had set the precedent that any leader with swords enough could subvert all laws and customs and enforce their rule everywhere throughout the mediterranean citizens and provincials alike were asking that if in fact the republic were divine 
as all Romans were taught since childhood, how could the gods allow this to happen again? It is a time of deep and moral spiritual crisis. It is a time of questioning one's faith. It is the edge of chaos, where the people no longer knew their place in Rome, the Republic, the world, or indeed the universe. Enter Senator Marcus Tullius Cicero, who had risen from his rural equestrian roots to become a giant in the power structure of Rome through sheer skill, oratory, and knowledge, and led his own small but powerful faction of the Senate. In fact, when Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus had first agreed to form their alliance, they had offered him the chance to join them and become the fourth ruler of Rome. But he had refused, for he believed that their style of government would lead to the destruction of the Republic. His decision not to join had given him the freedom to be their critic in the Senate and caused many instances where he felt his words had drawn the wrath of the three. Thus, whenever he delivered a particularly devastating critique, he would wisely take an extended vacation to Greece so as not to be on hand if the supporters of the triumvirate decided to kill him in hope of gaining the favor of their oligarch. During these self-imposed exiles in Greece, Cicero had at times weeks, sometimes months, to debate, learn, and sharpen his knowledge in areas like rhetoric, philosophy, and religion. Particularly when in Athens, he found the Greeks' more spiritual way of looking at the world and the gods a contrast to the more utilitarian Roman way. He combined their ideas with all he knew and formed his own way of thinking. More, he sought to use and apply Greek thought and philosophy to the current political situation in Rome. Desperate to try to make the powerful, those who would definitely read his writings first, see that there was a way back, a way to restore the Republic. If only he could make them see that the only way for their deeds to echo through eternity was not the acquisition of power itself, but how nobly they came by it and how justly they used their power before gracefully returning it to the people. As so many heroes of Rome who had been given the ultimate power of dictator had in the past. And he had to achieve this by using an example that would be relevant to this generation, not someone from ancient history. How? How at once to show the powerful the folly of their materialism and at the same time restore the spiritual faith of the plebs so that they could once again have a reason to believe in the divinity of their public. For he believed with every fiber of his being that the qualities that made Rome divine came from its institutions and societal adherence to most maiorum, the way of the ancestors. He had to make them see. Then it came to him, a half-forgotten story he had once heard, a story that sounded like a myth in the retelling, but it could work. It was about a celestial vision experienced by one that was universally held as the very paragon of Vertus, the legendary Scipio Emilianus, who had passed on to what comes next decades before. His death at the relatively young age of 54 was still seen by many as the reason Marius and Sulla were able to rip their world apart. They believed that his presence alone would have made the rivalry impossible. Thus, as his final chapter in his nearly finished work, Du Republica, which translates to On the Commonwealth, or in plebeian slang, this public thing of ours. He combined all he had come to believe about a person's place in the universe and married it to the story. Keep all this in mind as the context for the epic spiritual quest we are about to embark upon soon.
Scipio Emilianus's presence has been felt throughout all of verses, and we have come to know him well. But take a moment and just dream with me so we can refresh our knowledge and fill in some blanks that led to the moment where he experienced his dream. So, born in the year 185 before the Common Era, the second son of the noble Lucius Aemilius Pallas, he was favored by his father above all his brothers and nephews because he had an ability to win the love of anyone, be they noble, equestrian, pleb, or slave since childhood. At age 17, he served in his father's legions during the Third Macedonian War. Even so young, he proved an exceptional warrior and leader of men. At Pydna in 168, the battle that won the war, and where it is widely considered to have definitively proven the supremacy of the Roman legion over the Macedonian phalanx. However, hours after the titanic battle, the victorious consul Paulus found to his horror that his favorite son was missing in action. The ancient historian Plutarch writes, The whole army learned of the distress and anguish of their general, and springing up from their suppers ran about with torches, many to the tent of Aemilius, and many in front of the ramparts, searching among the numerous dead bodies. Dejection reigned in the camp, and the plain was filled with cries of men calling out his name, for from the very outset he had been admired by everybody, since beyond any other one of his family, he had a nature adapted for leadership in war and public service. Well, then, when it was already late and he was almost despaired of, he came in from the pursuit with two or three comrades, covered with the blood of the enemies he had slain. Though the consul's second son had no rank, serving as an ordinary legionary, he was hailed as the greatest warrior of his legion. And for leading a brilliant and victorious campaign, his father received the ultimate honor, the title Macedonicus, for breaking international Macedonian power forever, though the conquest was not complete. Even while the Third Macedonia was raging, on the other side of their world, west, the situation in Hispania was on the verge of disaster. These lands, modern Spain, were conquered by the Republic, wrested from Carthaginian control during the Second Punic War. However, the locals would not submit to their new oppressors. These tribes, called Celtiberians, were continually launching ambushes, raids, and were often in full-scale revolt. The legions of Hispania were suffering continual, often embarrassing defeats with ever-mounting casualties. Morale plummeted because the legionaries had little to gain in terms of spoils of war, especially compared to those gained by their comrades fighting the rich kingdoms of the East. Thus the Senate was having difficulty raising new recruits from the plebs, with many risking disgrace and punishment by making excuses, dodging recruiters, or going away to stay with distant relatives. Coupled with this lack of willing legionaries, Rome was having an extraordinarily hard time recruiting and replacing officers, with newly elected tribunes and even legates refusing to serve in Hispania. With his powerful family connections, the second son of Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus could have entered the Cursus Honorum and served as a military tribune in a plum assignment. Instead, the 18-year-old entered the Senate while it was in session, full, and in respect to his father and the virtues he had already earned on the battlefield, he was allowed to address the assembly. He asked that they appoint him military tribune, or even legate if no Roman would fill that role, and dispatch him to Hispania immediately. The Senate was shocked, and the second son was told that they would consult on the matter and give him their answer soon. They did, and after the Senate adjourned, they went home and told their families and friends, and soon all of Rome was talking about this young Optimate warrior who could have any station he wanted 
but had chosen the hardship that everyone was seeking to avoid. And because of this, the young men of the Republic, from plebs to nobles, felt shame for refusing to serve in Hispania. And those that did not were made to feel shame by their friends and family. The Republic's manpower crisis for Hispania solved seemingly overnight. At their next session, the Senate begged him to run for military tribune in the fast-approaching election, which he easily won and went to serve in Hispania in a vast convoy of troop ships, bursting with new recruits, wishing to prove their virtues. The campaign was vicious and violent in the extreme, total war to pacify the fledgling province. The newly minted tribune would in a single year become the lethal right hand of his commander, advising him, winning the mural crown for being the first man battling atop the walls of a besieged settlement and in a feat out of the age of heroes, winning the rare Spolia Opima, when he stripped the chieftain he slew in single combat of his armor and colossal battle axe, a duel we experienced in verses, the eagles of Jupiter. Covering himself in glory in the eyes of his people, and to the honor-obsessed Celtiberians becoming the Roman champion. The next year, the Third Punic War erupted after years of cries in the Senate from Cato the Elder who ended every session with the phrase Carthage must be destroyed, which bore fruit with the Roman invasion of Africa. Carthage, a shell of its former self after the defeat of Hannibal during the Second Punic War, was putting up a tremendous fight and the legions were hard-pressed. Scipio, still a tribune at this time, served with distinction, winning more honors and awards, and came to the attention of the royal court in Numidia when its ancient king, Massinissa, discovered that he was a first cousin of the Scipii, who he considered family, he wished to meet the young warrior and invited him to stay at the royal court for a time. After being joyously received by the king, they shared an epic conversation about Scipio Africanus. They spoke all day and enjoyed a lavish feast together at night. Then, Scipio Emilianus was taken to his guest chamber in the palace, and when he went to sleep, he was summoned to the heavenly plain by the legendary general himself who delivered him a prophecy. This is the story that he told and through decades of retelling had become something of a fragmented myth. It was this strange supernatural interaction to which Cicero attached his new understanding of the nature of the universe in order to reach the powerful leaders of his generation in the hopes that this new myth would inspire them to release their grip on power and return the Republic to the Senate and people of Rome by making them understand that the only way for their lives to have true meaning and resonance throughout eternity was to forsake the wealth and power they had accrued while on earth and live their lives justly. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and just let your mind float on my voice as we experience the spiritual side of the late Republic through the dream of Scipio Aemilianus. Ready? Then let's go. As you know, when I had come to Africa as military tribune of the 4th Legion, my greatest desire was to meet King Massinissa, who was a great friend of my family for the best of reasons. When I came to him, the old man embraced me and wept, and after he let go, he looked up at the sky and said, I give thanks to you, most excellent son, and to all other gods, because before I leave this life, I have welcomed into my home Publius Cornelius Scipio, whose very name restores my life, for he sparks the memory of Africanus, the very best of men. After this, I asked him about his kingdom, and he asked me about the Roman state. 
so the day passed with much conversation between us. Then we dined royally, and we talked deep into the night, the old king speaking of nothing but Africanus. Massinissa remembered not only all the things my grandfather had done, but also everything he had said. Then finally we went to our beds. I was so exhausted from my journey and from staying up late that I was gripped by a much deeper sleep than usual. Then, Africanus appeared. I knew his appearance from his wax death mask. When I truly recognized him, I began to tremble. But he said, Be calm, Scipio, and don't be afraid, and remember what I tell you. Do you see that city, the one I forced to obey the Roman people, but which now renews the war and is unable to keep the peace? He was pointing to Carthage, as we stood upon a high place full of stars, both glorious and bright. You've come to fight against it now as little more than a common soldier, but in two years as consul you will destroy it, and earn that name by your own efforts which you receive from me as an inheritance. After you have destroyed Carthage and celebrated your triumph, you will become censor, then ambassador to Egypt, Syria, Asia, and Greece. Following this, you will be elected consul a second time and conclude a great war by conquering Numantia. But after you have ridden in your triumphal chariot in the capital, you will find the Roman Republic in disorder. This will be the time, Scipio, when you must show your fatherland the brilliance of your mind, your talent, and your judgment. But at this point, I see a double path of fate before you. For when your years have reached seven times eight circular revolutions of the sun, to you and to your name the whole state will turn. To you they will all look, the senate, the leading citizens, the allies, the plebs, and the Latins. You will be the person on whom the safety of the whole state depends. In short, you will have to restore the republic as dictator. If, and only if, you can escape the impious hands of those close to you who seek your death. I was shocked. Then he continued, Scipio, so that you may be eager to preserve the Republic, know this. For everyone who has saved, helped, or expanded Rome, there is a special place set aside in the heavens where they may enjoy blessed eternal happiness. For there is nothing on earth more pleasing to the highest God who rules the whole universe than those councils and gatherings under law of people which are called states. The rulers and preservers of these have set out from here, and to here they return. At this point, even though I was afraid not so much of death as I was by treachery of those close to me, I asked him whether he and my father Paulus were actually alive, along with those we think of as dead. Yes, indeed, he said. These people are alive and have escaped from the chains of their bodies as if from a prison, for this thing you call life is in fact death. He pointed into the distance and said, Don't you see your father Paulus approaching you now? I looked. I did see him. My eyes were full of tears and I wept, but he came and embraced me and kissed me and told me not to cry. As soon as I was able to stop weeping, I began to speak. Most blessed and best of fathers, since as Africanus has told me this is life, why should I linger in the world? Why don't I hurry to come here to you? That is not how things work, he said. Unless the God who rules all over this holy place you see frees you from guardianship of your body, you cannot come here. Humans are born to obey this law, that they care for the world you see in the middle of this sacred realm, which is called Earth. They are given souls drawn from those eternal fires you call constellations and stars. 
These spherical globes are animated with divine minds and complete their rotations and orbits with miraculous speed. And so, Scipio, you and all pious people must keep your souls within the guardianship of your body. You must not depart from your body without the permission of the one who gave you your soul. You cannot be seen abandoning the earthly duty assigned to you by God. But like your grandfather here, and like me, the one who gave you life, you should cultivate justice and piety. This is of great importance in relation to your parents and family, but most of all to your country. That is the way to come to these heavens and to this gathering of those who have lived here and been freed from their bodies so that they inhabit the place you see, which you, as you have learned from the Greeks, call the Milky Way. As I looked at everything about me, it seemed marvelous and wonderful. There were stars we never see, and their size was such as we never suspected. The smallest one, which was farthest from the heavens, was closest to the earth and shone with a borrowed light. The globes of the stars easily surpassed the size of the earth, while the earth itself seems small to me now, so that I was ashamed of our republic that was little more than a point on it. As I continued to look down, Africanist asked me, How long will your mind be fixed on the ground? Don't you see this sacred place to which you have come? Everything you see here is connected in nine circles, or rather spheres. One of them, the highest, is the celestial sphere, which embraces all the rest. The supreme God himself protects and sets limits on the others. In this celestial sphere, the eternal courses of the fixed stars revolve. Inside this are seven spheres which revolve in the opposite direction, contrary to the motion of the heavens. The first of these spheres is that of Saturn, as it is called by those in your world. Next is the shining light of Jupiter, bringing health and safety to the human race. Then there is the red and hateful sphere, which you ascribe to Mars. Placed near the center is the sun, the leader, ruler, and guide of all the other stars, the mind and organizing force of the universe, so large that it illuminates and fills everything with its light. Finally, there are the orbits of Venus and of Mercury following like attendants. Lowest of all, the moon in its orbit turns, shining by the rays of the sun. Below that there is nothing, save that which is mortal and transitory, except the souls given to the human race by the gods. Above the moon are all things eternal. The ninth sphere, in the center of all is the earth, which is fixed and does not move. It is the place to which all weights fall by their own will. I was overwhelmed and stared at all of it until I finally recovered my wits and asked, What is that sound so strong and sweet that fills my ears? That sound, he said, arises from the action and motion of the spheres themselves. It is joined together in uneven intervals, but nonetheless divided according to proportion. By blending together high notes with low, a melodious music is created. One song, one verse. The movement of the heavenly spheres cannot be silent. The lowest sphere naturally makes a deep sound, while the farthest away makes a high sound. That is the highest sphere, bearing the stars of heaven, which turns very rapidly, makes a high and lively sound. The movement of the lowest sphere, that of the moon, causes a deep sound. The ninth sphere, the earth, is silent and does not move, embracing as it does the center of the universe. But the other eight orbits of the spheres, with Venus and Mercury having the same pitch, make seven sounds distinct in their intervals, a key number to almost all things that exist. Learned men who have imitated the sound with stringed instruments and voices have opened themselves for a return to this place, 
just as others with outstanding minds have cultivated divine studies in human life. The ears of humanity are filled with this sound all the time. None of your other senses is more dulled. The same thing has happened in the place where the Nile plunges down from the mountains. The people who live there have become completely deaf because of the loudness of the sound. Likewise, the music of the entire universe rotating rapidly is so loud that humans cannot hear it. Just as you cannot stare directly at the sun because your sense of sight is overcome by the intensity of its rays. Although I marveled at these heavenly things, I kept turning my eyes back to the earth. Then Africana said, I realize you are still focused on the dwelling and home of humanity. But if you were to realize that it is truly as small as it seems to you, you would turn your sight to heavenly things and scorn human affairs. What kind of praise from the mouths of men or what kind of glory can you achieve in that place that is worthwhile? You can see that humans inhabit only small, narrow parts of the earth and are scattered about in these, separated by vast wastelands. The inhabitants of your world are so cut off from each other that nothing is able to pass from one group to another. Some live on the same latitude as you, but others below you, and some on the opposite side of the globe. You can certainly not expect to gain fame among them. You can see that the earth is bound and girded as if by zones, of which two most distant from each other lie beneath opposite poles of the sky and are frozen stiff by cold. The central zone of the earth is the largest and parched by the heat of the sun. Only two zones of your world are habitable, with the southern one, whose inhabitants have their feet opposite from you, completely cut off from your zone. And there, if you look, you will only see a small part of the northern zone belongs to you. The whole land you inhabit is like a little island, narrow from north to south, and only somewhat wider east to west. It is surrounded by a sea called the Atlantic or Great Sea or Ocean. But in spite of whatever grand name is used, it is really quite small. And you surely don't believe that your fame or that of anyone among you could be so great as to pass from the lands you know and inhabit to climb the Caucasus Mountains, which you see down there, or to swim across the Ganges River over there. No one in the far eastern lands, or the remote west, or the northern or southern regions will ever so much as hear your name. And if you take those people out of consideration, you will see how tiny is the land across which you hope to spread your glory. Even among those who do know us, how long will your memory last? Assume for a moment that the children of future generations will indeed want to pass on to their descendants stories praising us that they heard from their fathers. The floods and fires that destroy the earth at regular intervals will inevitably come and wipe out any hope we might have that our glory will last very long, let alone be eternal. But indeed, why do you care that future generations remember you? After all, no one in the past ever spoke about you and they were more numerous than us and better men. We should also keep in mind that even among those who are able to hear about us, no one will remember us for more than a year. People commonly measure the passage of a year by the sun, that is, by the cycle of a single star. But a year is in fact measured by the time it takes for all the stars in the heavens to return to the place from which they began. And how many human generations that would take, I would scarcely dare to guess. Once long ago, it seemed to those living on earth as if the sun had failed and its light extinguished. Just at that moment, the spirit of Romulus ascended into the sacred place. When the sun reaches that same place again, at the same time, then you will know that the stars have returned to their place of origin and that a year has truly passed. 
So far, not even a 20th of that time has passed. And so, even if you despair of returning someday to this place in which all things exist for great and eminent men, what is human glory really worth? After all, it scarcely lasts for even a fraction of a single year. So gaze upward, if you will, and contemplate this dwelling place in eternal home. Pay no attention to what common men might say about you, and place none of your hopes in human rewards. Let virtue herself, by her own allurements, draw you to true honor. Let other people worry over what they say about you. They will say it in any case. All their words are contained in that narrow bit of earth you see below you, and none of them will last forever. Whatever they say is lost when they die, and their words are forgotten by generations yet to come. When he finished speaking, I contemplated his words and said, Truly, Africanus, if indeed there is a path to the heavens for those who have served their country well, please know that even though I have tried my utmost since boyhood to follow in your footsteps and those of my father, and not to fall short of your glory, I swear I will try all the harder now that I see this great reward laid out before me. He smiled approvingly and answered, Indeed, keep striving and know this, that you are not mortal, only your body. You are not what the outward form of your body reveals, not what a finger can point at. The true self of each person is in the mind. Know, therefore, that you are a god, for a god is someone who moves, who feels, who remembers, who looks to the future, who rules over and guides and directs the body he is master of, just as that supreme god directs the universe. And just as the eternal God controls the universe, which is partly mortal, so too your eternal spirit directs your fragile body. That which is always in motion is eternal, but that which causes motion in something else and is itself moved by external force, when that motion stops, it must by necessity cease to live. Therefore only what moves itself, because it never deserts itself, never ceases to move. This, then, is the source and beginning of movement for all things that move. There is no origin of a first principle, since a first principle is what all arises from, and so it cannot have originated from anything else. If it arose from something else, it couldn't be called a first principle. If it never starts, then it also never stops. For if the first principle were destroyed, it could not be born again from anything else, nor could it ever create anything from itself since it is necessary that everything arises from a first principle. Therefore, the beginning of motion comes from that which is moved by itself. It cannot be born or die, for otherwise all the heavens and all of nature would stop by necessity, with no force able to move them from the start. And since it is clear that what moves itself is eternal, who can deny that the soul has such a nature? Whatever is moved by an external force is inanimate, but whatever is animate is moved by its own internal motion. That is the unique nature and power of the soul. And so, if it is the one thing of all that moves itself, the nature of the soul is certainly eternal. So use your soul for the best of deeds, and the greatest deeds of all are done in service to your country. The soul aroused and excited by such deeds will fly more swiftly to this place, its dwelling and home and it will fly here fast as if, while still entrapped in its body, it has ventured far, and contemplated what lies beyond itself to detach itself from the body as much as possible. Indeed, the souls of those who have given themselves to the pleasures of the body, and have become addicted to those pleasures, to become ruled by such passions and pleasures, 
have broken the laws of gods and men. When they die, their souls circle the earth suffering many ages of torment before they return to this place. Then Africanus put his hand on my shoulder and looked into my eyes and vanished, and I awoke from my sleep. So ends Senator Marcus Tullius Cicero's dream of Scipio. See how he blends Greek and Roman thought on nature, philosophy, science, and religion to define one's place in the universe, and weaves it into the story of this hero of the Republic. How all worldly action flows from the motion driven by the souls that inhabit all living things, that the soul of a human being is beholden to itself and connected to the God that is the universe. Each person is responsible for their actions in life. Seeking fame, wealth, and power and worldly pleasure comes at the highest price, dooming one's internal self to become trapped around the lowest sphere, never able to join the chorus of the song that binds everything together, and how true freedom from this mortal plane comes from noble actions in the service of others, the state. Through the prophecy that Africanus gave Scipio, Cicero even weaves a conspiracy theory into the mix, because we know that Scipio Aemilianus did not become dictator and save the Republic, but died at the age of 56, with many Romans believing that he was poisoned by those closest to him. With Caesar away with his legions in Gaul, in truth Cicero was aiming this at an audience of one, Pompey Magnus. Would he see that everything, all the wealth, power, and fame he had accrued was meaningless because it was leading to the death of the Republic in the civil war that seemed imminent? Well, that is a tale for another day. The influence of this work is immense and all around us, as it was very popular in the Middle Ages, confirming that the ancients knew that the Earth was a sphere, giving new insight into man's place in the universe and the soul's path to heaven. It informed and influenced early cosmology and astrology, artists like Raphael and composers like Mozart. And Scipio's vision of Earth from the heavens was the forerunner of early science fiction writers' description of the experience of being in orbit. In addition, the moral lessons for everyone, but especially all those who seek to be leaders, is more important now than ever before. Thank you for listening to Deep Into History. Please tell everyone you know about the show. You can support my art by going to patreon.com slash deepintohistory directly on Spotify and soon Apple Podcasts. And please leave a review wherever you listen. You can follow me at Deep Into History on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, and Threads to get your daily blast from the past as well as maps, links, and visuals for every tale. And as always, my dear friend, take care of yourself. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep.